book report. It's a book report. It's a book report about a movie. Cause that makes sense. Welcome back everybody to The Real Weirdos. Today, it's Alex and I giving you a book report about a movie. Because that makes sense. We're English majors. We're two. We're one and a half white men. I was going to say two and a half white men, but Jeff's not here. Yeah. And today we're talking about Stay Lag 17 from 1953, director Billy Wilder. And I had you watch this because you were a big Great Escape fan. Yeah. And I was like, you should see Stay Lag 17 because it's basically the, I don't know, the tonal, uh, the everything precursor yeah. to The Great Escape, right? Definitely. I didn't even realize that this movie was that much older. Um, also, I just want to say, finally, we're doing a movie from, like, the golden age, right? Um, I don't know if we've Ugh. done a movie this old before, but you and I, like, privately, we talk back and forth all the time about all the, the old films that we've seen and whatnot. And, I mean, we've talked about it before on the on the podcast. I don't know where you are in your, you know, progression through time. I think right. that took a little just a detour for now but so yeah a little bit of history um i started it was like a pandemic project where i i don't know i love cinema i love film and i wanted to get it like a holistic view and this was just sort of like a me maintaining sanity thing as well where i decided to start in the golden age the golden uh, year of cinema 1939 compile a list and start like moving chronologically forward through it and the list just keeps growing because I'll be like, oh, I like that actor or I like this director. Like, who's Billy Wilder? I'm going to add all his movies to the list. And going through it in true spectacular nerd fashion through a fucking Excel spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now I've made it from 1939 to 1964, I believe I'm in. Oh, I'm starting yeah. into the James Bond era. Fuck where yeah. colorization and wide aspect ratios are becoming more of the norm and it's really fun it's really fun and that's the i started rec- i started like journaling this kind of thing uh in the old one more take website which is now defunct but that gave birth to the one more take podcast which we started and then we found out there were a couple other ones named mm-hmm. that so then we rebranded to real weirdos there were a few more one more takes people so we had to switch it up yeah i guess i didn't do my research oh it's fine i mean the internet is vast and humongous it's vast nobody out there better take the real weirdos and like pass us it wouldn't be that hard (laughs) we don't have that many subs (laughs) well but i'd send them a nice email be like please i know seriously you are all much more handsome and better (laughs) spoken than us I don't know about those things. Maybe just more popular. <laughs> but um but yeah, so that's yeah, and you're right. Like we haven't done an old movie mostly because Jeff is not interested, I don't think, in doing them. Um which is fine. It's totally fine. But uh you and I are definitely more keyed into this era. We've seen Billy Wilder movies. We'll get into his career a little later after we talk about the film, I think, or maybe during. We'll see how it goes. But, um, yeah, what did you think of Stay Lag 17? So, I loved it. It was so good. I knew you would. I mean, the the little twists at the end. I mean, the twists throughout were amazing. But I want to say that, really quick, to compare it, I guess, to my experience with The Great Escape, 
I actually think that it's a little more fun than The Great Escape. It's a little more action, not action-packed, excuse me. It's a little more fast-moving. Um, and for some reason, The Great Escape felt more like, to me, the focus was on how cool all of the characters were. Like, Charles Bronson's a badass. And Steve McQueen is, you know, this steely leader of a gang of hoodlums. And it was, ended a little more seriously. And I think maybe it was more serious in tone. This one, however, was amazing because the characters were all so rich on their own. And the focus was not on each of them necessarily in their stories. But it was more, the focus was like on this huge you know it's like a a whodunit kind of thing they're like trying to figure out who the spy is within their barracks and whatnot and the focus was all on this like unraveling of this mystery and it was almost yeah. like a mystery movie and like you accuse different characters at different times of being the double agent and whatnot right i don't know this movie was i think this movie was probably better than the great escape wow but, that's a big claim yeah. my friend but i think that the great escape is honestly more accessible to film audiences overall and more accessible today yeah i was thinking about that as well um because it it, it and that makes sense right because it has actors that are still have a little more resonance now than you know william holden i suppose because mm -hmm. you have steve mcqueen and charles bronson and stuff but it's also color and it's wide aspect ratio this is like yeah. an old movie and it looks like an old movie because it's black and white it's four by three um there are some elements in it that really feel dated we'll get into that but but in a in a good way and i and to your point about the I don't know it feeling tighter than the great escape it is two hours as opposed to three i believe the great escape is um wow. the great escape is a perfect movie though and it earns every second of it but yeah and it has this comedic element that the great escape kind of has mm -hmm. it's more tonal in the great escape though like it has this sort of a whimsical nature and this repetition that happens as Steve McQueen gets caught again and sent back to the cooler. They mm -hmm. toss him his baseball and glove as the theme song plays and you're just like <laughs> in for the ride. And it's really fun. This movie is more of a comedy. It's like an ensemble whodunit comedy that takes place in a, a stalag or a German prison camp for American prisoners. Mm -hmm. An officer's prison camp, which is interesting. They're all sergeants, right? Um, which comes into play later. It's interesting because the way I like how you talked about the the aspect ratio, the way that they designed the sets in this film were I thought beautiful. Every time I was in the barracks, the American barracks, I was like, I don't know, they're all the little trinkets all on the walls. The way that they have like the focus of the film is down like or the focus of the frame is down the main little hallway between everyone's bunks and it gives the room so much space and depth and like they were able to shoot a multitude of scenes in that same room where I felt like I was in a different place each time and it's kind of like when you go into like an Applebee's not an Applebee's but like a non-franchise chain restaurant like that and there's like kitschy shit all over the walls I love right. that shit by the way so Seeing it and seeing it in black and white was even more amazing because my brain was able to just fill in all of these colors and like 
whatever that canteen was hanging on the wall or whatever those, you know, posters next to Animal's bedroom or his little bed bunk were. So I love the set design. I love the way that they had everything shot. Um, I think that the narration, not the narration, excuse me, um, the writing was just a little snappier and a little better than uh, The Great Escape. It was a little more captivating to me. And I mean, Billy Wilder and, and Edwin Blum, right? They're not like slouches, so that makes sense. Um, Billy Wilder is known for his snappy dialogue. Yeah. In fact, it can it's it goes so far into the snappy direction that I think some of his later films become unwatchable. Okay. But but we'll get into that. Um, I think this movie is perfectly balanced because it has that co- comedic tone. It has amazing scenes where you see these characters interacting. You're never like expressly told who these people are, but it does a great job in just expressing it in a nonverbal way, just through the performances, through the little visual tics. And that, yeah. that does tie in as well to what you're saying, which is like the the visual element of this film, like the visual storytelling is really strong. I like your point as well about it sort of being a, like a hemmed in location. I hadn't really thought about that, but that is something I really love. And I think it's the hallmark of a really great director when they can take one single location and mm-hmm. make it feel fresh the whole time. Some of my favorite examples of that are like, 12 Angry Men is yes. probably the, the best example, but then you also have more more contemporary examples like The Hateful Eight by Tarantino. Mm-hmm. I was going to go even say ones that are maybe less, that are not as good as those films that you just mentioned. Um, yeah. But there are movies like Panic Phone Room? Booth, Panic Room. Um, you know, I think Birdman was actually a great movie, but that movie is like, for some people, it's hard to watch. You're talking you know, about Birdman of Alcatraz. No, 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 excuse me. Oh, you're talking Birdman, about Birdman. Um, by Iñárritu, oh, the one with okay. Michael Keaton. It's all It all takes place within the theater, you know? Uh, yeah, there are times when he's out on the streets. And yeah, there's so a, there's a it's more just one like shot, though. varied location in terms of like the studio, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, the, the camera follows him when he goes out into the street. So it's like you were you in the studio and then you go or the playhouse and then you go playhouse. out into the street yeah, excuse me. and it like turns back around and goes back in. And when they do that, it's like very, it was very claustrophobic to me. But no, I mean, Rear Window is probably another, you know, perfect example of this. That movie is yeah, for some people yeah, yeah. really hard to sit through. I love it. I think it mimics, you know, the being sitting in the back oh, of the window with a, a cast perfectly. Yeah. Exactly. So this film, Stylic 17, does it in the very in like a very similar way, but it does it without color and it does it without that aspect ratio. And it's just it's just fucking genius. I loved it. Um, but Shapiro and Animal going to your snappy dialogue comment. At the beginning, I was a little like I was like, okay, can these two just slow down a bit? You're worried that they would be just a yeah. little too much, a little yeah. overbearing with their da 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 routine. Ex- yeah, <laughs> but it actually ended up being totally fine and working out. I think Animal, um, the character, the guy who played him, was uh, I can't think of his name right now, but holy shit, what a Robert Strauss is his name. Excuse me. What a performance, right? Yeah, his face, <laughs> like his the movement of his body, just the way he'd hold his underbite. His lower lip would just, you know, protrude like in every scene. It was perfect. And then 
I really liked your point actually about how the characters kind of came alive subtly in their own ways, but like really strongly and effectively. Like William Holden's character, instantly I was like, okay, here's Mr. Too Cool, right? Like he's not in yeah. on the camaraderie. He's just, he has his own little corner. He's got his distillery. He's, he's got just his in little, it to win it. Exactly. And I was like, yeah. okay, so many characters in cinematic history, prison movies, war movies, whatever, have a character like this that I'm almost positive you could trace back to William Holden's character in here. Oh, dude, 100%. So I was thinking about that, especially um, uh, John Malkovich in Empire of the Sun. Exactly. Like, definitely Spielberg had some influence of Stalag here. It's like kind of the same character. Oh, it's spot on almost. Like even the American barracks in Empire of the Sun have to be an homage to this movie. Like when Christian Bale's character goes from the English barracks, which are all, you know, grim, proper, and stiff upper lip, he then goes to the American barracks and it's just cacophony of like, it's like a radio pans. <laughs> yeah, like cigarettes, people are shaving, playing card games. And it's like, I don't know. I mean... I'm biased, we're biased, but that that's the type of patriotic, like, emblematic symbolism that I'm like, ooh, I like that. That makes me feel American. Yeah, and we'll talk about the characters. I want to go into, like, the visual filmmaking a little bit first, because we did touch on that. And I don't know, it's, it is tremendous. Um, I, I noted one moment, especially, that was really great visual filmmaking, where they're out in the yard, and the sergeant, the, the German, whatever, commander, I don't know, military ranks, is like just telling them they won't get anything for Christmas except the delousing. And Animal chucks, uh, chucks that one guy's flute at him Joey. into the mud. Yeah. And it's like, who did that? Step forward. And Animal steps forward and then everyone else steps forward. And I thought that was like, it reminded me of Kurosawa, right? Where what Kurosawa did was have a reaction shot, but instead of have like, one person do it he'd have like eight people do it mm -hmm. to to bolster the the reactivity and the feeling from the audience oh yeah and so it did that but it also showed that these guys are all in it together oh you 100%. know and it's, it's like you didn't get that through some speech we're like we're all in it together it was yeah. it was represented visually and that carries over throughout the whole film it's it's interesting to see that this this movie that, I don't know, for some people will probably look archaic because it is old. Mm -hmm. And you'll have those static shots where it's just like a scene happening and the camera's not super dynamic. But everything is positioned so well. And it's so well constructed if, you, if you're looking for it that it's just like a pleasure to watch at all times. Oh, that scene that you're talking about even, like the first, when you see Animal Step Forward... It's a shot from the angle as if you were the German commandant, right? And then his buddy steps forward. And then you see eight other people from like barracks four step forward. And then the camera changes and it's over the entire yard. And then you see everyone step forward. And so that stepped like sequenced visual filmmaking, I think is also like really emblematic of the time period. And I was going to ask you, do you think that that was something they had to cleverly figure out on their own because of like I don't know how to say this really it's not necessarily like a lack of visual cues for the audience but the way that technology is now you can like visualize and manifest anything you want for the audience right like 
and it almost feels like cheating. And when I watch films like this, I'm reminded of almost how beautiful simplicity can be in filmmaking, right? And like how beautiful something like visual storytelling can be compared to like a fucking speech, you know, that riles up the popcorn eaters and whatnot. Yeah. I don't know if I'd segmented by era quite like that. I think you're going to have masters of the craft in any era and mm-hmm. people who just rely on really obvious dialogue in any era. Um, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. But I, it, it did call to mind there's another one where one of the guys is, or two of the guys escape in the beginning of the film and then they're out in the yard and they see the bodies. And the camera slowly pans from one character to the next as they go, like, they nudge each other, like, hey, yeah. look at it, look at it. And that also that also ties into the storyline as well, because when you have every character seeming to be on the same page, not just because they're Americans in this situation, but represented visually as well, like, you have this sort of group mentality in the visual filmmaking represented there. It makes it that much harder to figure out who the traitor is, you know, because they're all just on the same page cinematically. I, I was going to say, I was watching this film with my girlfriend and we were going back and forth about all of those things. Cause I was nice. like, I was like, could it be Duke? Cause the reason that Duke initially set my radar off cause he was so loud about it. Right. And he was so like, he was so adamant about catching the traitor. And I was like, okay, well that is like a well-known tactic of, you know, just be the accuser and then no one will ever expect you but then i was like you know that's too easy because he seems like he actually genuinely cares about everyone and then i was like what if it's fucking i was like i already crossed animal off the list because i was like no he's just too no way yeah (laughs) yeah but that would have been a wild surprise is actually animal the whole time god that would be heartbreaking he was just too much of like a happy-go-lucky guy that i was like no 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 but I was thinking for a second, I was like, what about Shapiro? You know, because like he's like always running his mouth and like wheeling and dealing or something. But then I got into the historical aspect of it. That wouldn't have been satisfying. Well, also. He's a Jew, right? Exactly. Do you really think that a Jew of all people would, you know, be the one to be a traitor and side with the Nazis? I don't think so. This is a huge historical assumption. I'm not trying to be offensive with it. It's just when I was watching the movie with the historical context, trying to figure out who the traitor was, I was like, it's like you said, it was perfect. I was like going through all of these characters and giving them like a a rundown, you know, but each character was so on the surface, visually inconspicuous that it was really, really hard. Like at one point I even thought it was Sefton before everyone started to Mm, accuse him. The red herring. You get all this shit. You obviously are buddy-buddy with some of these people. And then, I don't know. Can we just say, too, I mean, I love how you brought it back to the visual and, the, like, the narrative aspect because the next big thing you see is the light bulb and the chess piece, right? Which does its own visual explanation without having to talk about it at all. Mm, I have a note on that. So this was originally a stage play, oh. a Broadway production by Donald Bevan and Edmund Tritsky. I'm okay. saying that wrong because I cannot pronounce it. I think it's Polish or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those TRZCs, man. I oh, have no idea. The consonants, man. They ever heard of a vowel? That element precisely was uh, him overhearing dialogue in the play. 
And Billy Wilder was like, no, no, no. We got to do this because I'm a master of cinema. Oh, that's We got to do it this way. Yeah, you see, it's even the shadow. He sees the shadow of it moves up from his bunk. Uh, it's mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, going back real quick to figuring out who it was. I can't remember what my thought process was the first time I saw it. Okay. Because that was some time ago. It was over a year ago when I first saw it. But this time, I think, I don't, it's, it was cool looking. It is a cool movie to revisit because it is one of those, like, oh, you can, like, you know who did it, so you can kind of look for signs. Mm-hmm. And there's not exactly clues or anything like that until the reveal. But that guy, I can't remember his name, but he's Price. just so, Price, he's so straight-laced, so just, da-da-da, I'm American, man. And <laughs> and something about his, like, stature and the blonde hair, I was like, I think it's there. Like, he's the one who looks the most like a Nazi. You know what I yeah, mean? He no. has the genealogy. He was wearing, okay, so if you notice, his, like you said, his clothes are always really clean. And they're always, like, they're they're kind of, like, they're not pressed, right? But he is more put together than the rest of them. You know, fucking Duke always looks like he just worked on underneath the car for like 10 yeah, hours. He like, does. Animal Smoking looks like. Dunhills. Exactly. <laughs> animal looks like he rolled around in the leftover of Duke's work, you know, right. like for 10 hours. <laughs> I mean. Just falling in mud all over the time, all the time. Exactly. And Sefton is a little put together, but I attributed that more to his coolness. But yeah, Price, it. He's interesting. I mean, it's hard because now I know. But with with him, he would do this thing where he would be speaking, but he'd be looking off into the distance. Not at anyone, but like kind of past the camera. And I only picked on the, up on that when it became more apparent that, you know, he was indeed the traitor. But I wanted to say that visual cues and clothing lead an audience into either comfort where they can be easily like swayed to not think that a character is important or vice versa. And with Price, his clothes are always different than the other characters. It's all in black mm. and white, right? It's hard to see the exact I colors. I did not pick up on that. I can tell you though, they did a sort of a, um, sorry, what's the movie with, with uh, Kevin Spacey, Usual Suspects? The, yeah, I was just gonna bring that movie up too, yeah. So an interesting thing is that they did a usual suspects routine in the making of this movie. I'm just going to read it here. Uh, mm-hmm. But in order to keep the actors' reactions of the film's plot twists as close to genuine as possible, the film was shot in sequential order. So the inference there is that the actors did not know who the traitor was, which I love. Oh, that's amazing. So, like, not even Price, huh? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how that works in terms of adapting it from a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the technicalities here. I'm just reading IMDb factoids, but I don't know. So there is some, I don't know, contention in those two elements. But uh, I like to I like to assume that they didn't know. It just makes it more fun. Honestly, I think that's beautiful. And if anything, it just makes the visual aspect of this film like even even better or more rich and when we say visual here because i'm just saying it because lack of a better word we don't mean like the you know actual cinematography or like the the actual how do i say this like visual uh quality of the film it's more about the way that they set things up visually like a stage play to help further the plot along yeah what do you you call that it's not set design it's not blocking it's sort of a mingle of these things it's just i don't know 
filmmaking shot composition, I guess. Yeah, it's like um, storyboarding in a way where it, you would read a play and then it seems like Billy Wilder, you know, just rearranged the blocks. And he did it in a way that was, I, I don't know, it made it more genuine for the audience. Because, like, yeah. this movie is, it's hard to figure out what's going on at first. Is it a comedy? Is it just, like, a fun little, they keep trying to escape? Like, are they going to pull a fast one over the guards? Like, what is going on? And then you realize it's this deep and, like, interconnected traitor plot. And then, I don't know, the movie, the total focus for me was, like, I don't care if they escape. I just want them to find the rat and, like, yeah. get him out. Or just, or just have fun. It's like a character movie as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it's it's a character movie. And it's also, like, I don't know, I would classify it almost as a hangout movie, which is weird because it's just taking place in a prison camp, but the way that they all interact with each other and they have these little parties and like the shenanigans that they get up to, whether that's brewing hooch or like looking through Sefton's spyglass at the Russian <laughs> lady prisoner's camp and the howling like fucking monkeys. <laughs> I love that shit. It's yeah, so no. much fun. I mean, so it's really hard not to talk about Empire of the Sun with this film. Um, the scenes in that film are like running through my head as we're talking and that movie too is I mean that movie is long as fuck it's like three and a half hours it's an epic film but and there are a lot of themes and it's way more serious but there are moments that are like directly pulled from Stalag 17 and there is moments in Empire of the Sun where it is just a hangout movie it's just Christian Bale and Malkovich and the other sidekick guy just hanging out with each other they hang out at the at the uh, the barracks when they finally get captured and it's I don't know it's just so interesting to see a movie that is from this time period because people think that the storylines are kind of bland or they can be kind of straightforward like it's very linear or boring people say old movies are boring yeah it's like point A point B you're done right so this film just is I don't know it's so rich and It's sad because I don't know if I've seen a film with so many talented actors that give each other so much space to breathe and grow and like be really dynamic with each other without it being like in today's parlance, I guess you would call it an ensemble movie, right? 100%. Yeah. And it's, it's irritating to me that like I can't get a film with a bunch of good actors that just disappear from their A-list celebrity identity. Mm. What would be the closest analog in like the 21st century? I don't know. Like Ocean's Eleven? I have no idea. I mean... The remake a, I mean, of The Magnificent Seven? <laughs> those are good shouts though, right? Because it, it, it is kind of like that. I mean... Quentin Tarantino's movies are less ensemble than this because the characters don't like interact in the same room at all times together in every one of his movies. Yeah. His, I mean, his films are stock full of great actors and great characters as well. I mean, you know, uh, I was going to say... I think the closest you get is like Reservoir Dogs because they're all interacting and you're trying to figure out the traitor. Of course you do have that. It's, it's more chronologically dissociated because it has the flashbacks and all that stuff but I could see that one when they're in the the parking garage I mean Wes Anderson obviously loves to put his ensemble cast together but Wes Anderson it's gotten to the point with and it's not Wes Anderson's fault it's through no fault of his own it's just 
the status of some of these actors now it just is like really like jarring like i get bill murray i get owen wilson and jason schwartzman cool i can deal with that but when chalamet starts popping up jeffrey wright tilda swinton um you know francis mcdormand even who's been in wes anderson films and has disappeared into her role perfectly fine before it's just i don't know um i i just think it speaks to the quality of maybe the industry and of hollywood in general when Billy Wilder was writing films, he had a cadre of a pool of actors he could choose from that were all just so fucking good. There's like no other way to say it. Yeah, I looked up a lot of these guys. I looked up Animal specifically, and I maybe seen him in one other thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I was surprised. I was like, this guy, I guess he was just a, like a small character actor who just had this bigger role in this movie. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, man, who, I mean, do you have a favorite character? Sefton, easy. Sefton, for sure. I mean, William Holden was just, was, he was just so cool. And I loved the sea change in his character. It goes from, Mr. I don't give a fuck, the war's going in a bad way, we're gonna lose. You know, he's betting, he's not betting, but he's taking bets of saying, like, those two guys are gonna die. They're not gonna make it out of here at the very beginning. And, like, it's grim, but he's obviously the pessimistic realist. But then, when he gets accused of being the one, He's like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to find out who this fucking traitor is. And like, he goes into full like spy mode. Right. And he, yeah. I mean, he yeah, takes yeah. a beating. He's like the wronged man. I mean, he is a primary target. He is a good suspect. I will say, but I don't know. It's just way too obvious. I know. And he's yeah. just way too cool, man. So yeah, I really cool. loved Sefton and Duke was actually, I thought he just had really good energy as well. He was a good anchor of the film to like snap me back into what it was about because he would always be like furious with just the situation, you know, throwing books at Sefton and but oh, fuck. Sorry. Yeah. You got another one? I have one more person. Yeah. I have to it. give them a shout out. Otto Preminger? No, no. It's William Pearson's character and he is Marco the Mailman. Oh my, I have him in my, in my notes. I have Eddie's, Eddie's. That's literally in my notes. And I was going to ask you, did people ever actually talk like that? It is so 1950s. <laughs> His Eddie's, <voice>. hey, <laughs> hey. You're like, no, you can't, that cannot be your voice. It's like more James Cagney than James Cagney. Oh, <laughs> it's James Cagney dialed up to like 9,000. It's insane. Uh, but I loved him. He was good. Speaking of James Cagney, I want to get into Billy Wilder a little bit. Um, wait, before that, actually, hold the phone. I, it, okay, so there are a few moments in this movie where I felt that it was like, I'm not saying this as a bad thing, but just like it felt antiquated. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm watching oh, yeah. a 50s movie. That yeah. was one of them. The other one was when they all ran out. They're like, the Russian female prisoners are here. And they all rush out and they're hooting like animals. Yeah. And you're like, this is probably not how this whole thing would go down in real life at all. This was Mm-mm. probably like a depressing, miserable nightmare. And it's fine to not represent it like that. I know it's a comedy yeah. and everything, but that was one of the moments where I was like, this is an older movie. Oh, 100%. I mean, even like the jovial spirits of everyone at the, like animal would not, be, he would not have that much meat on his bones. Like mm. it's just, the food rations of being a prisoner of war was like you would lose weight you were skinny and yeah there was some probably really nice times of camaraderie and like joy but 
standing out doing Betty Grable. Yeah, right. Betty like, Grable. That woman that showed up, the Brit Kremlin, the blonde Russian, um, her hair was like all permed and pressed. Like Oh, the Russian ladies. I was oh like, those God. ladies look way too good. Oh, they do, of course, right? <laughs> For like, POWs. They would look absolutely just they'd be just as miserable as all of them. Well, this is this is like this is like the precursor not only to classic movies like The Great Escape and Empire of the Sun and probably a lot more that we're not thinking of. It's also like the dawning of Billy Wilder's... I don't know. You can see the elements of him being a sex comedy director yeah. just beginning to, to, to flourish here. Mm-hmm. And just a tiny bit, just enough. It's, it's great for this movie. But I do want to talk about him if you're cool with moving it on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's a legend. He's a legend. Um, he's one of the greatest of all time, but it is uneven. So I've seen almost all his movies. He starts out with some interesting ones like Five Graves to Cairo. And then you have like a, a one of the a couple of the best noir movies ever. You have Double Indemnity in 1944 with the great, uh, oh God, Fred McMurray. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Sunset Boulevard in 1950 absolute 10 out of 10 amazing movie we should we should honestly cover that at some point yeah um ace in the hole which is where kirk douglas plays this amoral like (sighs) newspaper man trying to get a story he'll do anything to get a story then you have stay lag 17 and then it starts to get weird where he goes into like more of a absolute comedic direction Whereas things yeah. like Sunset Boulevard and Ace in the Hole are like completely straight, more or less. Mm-hmm. You get things like Sabrina, which I'm okay with because it is uh, Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. And she she does fall in love with an old man, but it's Humphrey Bogart. So I'm, ex- I'm okay with that because <laughs> I love Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. But then there are movies that I cannot stand, which like one, two, three, or sorry. Yeah, no, one, two, three. That's... um bringing it back to Jimmy Cagney where he's like a Coca-Cola executive and the whole fucking movie is like the mailroom guy from Stay Lag 17 just shouting. Oh, really? I made it through 10 minutes and I was like, I have to shut this off. Shit. I was always, I was like gonna throw something out the window. (laughs) It was so fucking (laughs) annoying. And he does this with his characters. Like some like it hot is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Seven Year Itch, which is the classic Marilyn Monroe skirt movie, yeah, dress movie, With Tom Ewell. I I cannot stand that movie. You know this. Yeah. Um, I think it's just because I hate that character so much. I hate that character with every inch of my being. He's so nebbish and so pathetic that it's it's like I can't even focus on what's working in the movie because I dislike the character. Ah. I think he made the character he wanted to make. I just hated it. And then after that, it just goes into like a series of sex comedies starring Jack Lemmon. I have a theory that I don't know the box office return for his other films, but going back to Stalag really quick, that film was $1 million to make, around one and a half. It made $10 million, almost 1,000% return. And it's like... If a studio sees that and is like, oh man, the snappy like comedy dialogue is really putting butts in the seats, you know? It could have I could have seen it like kind of steer even 
Billy Wilder himself being like, holy fuck, I did not expect to get a check this big to like sway him that way. I would like to think that Billy Wilder wasn't as, you know, craven as to just, you know. No, I think he made the movies he wanted to make. They just became less interesting to me because they're just for like, I don't know. There a lot of them are just silly comedies. So Aaron you Sorkin know? is someone who's a little more contemporary, who I feel like draws a lot from Billy Wilder. Um, if you ever watch The West Wing or any of the movies that he did in like the early 90s. Can you name some is, for me? Um, the West Wing is 100% like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, but I ain't seen that. Name a movie. Um, so Let me look this up. Charlie Wilson's War um, is one. A Few Good Men. He did Moneyball. And he did oh. Steve Jobs with a, with a Fastbender. Not, fast not with Ashton Kutcher. Moneyball Social Network. He he wow. wrote the social network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He worked with yeah, Fincher. Yeah, yeah. So you can okay, in the social network, that's a good example, actually. I don't know how much of it is Jesse Eisenberg's like way of playing characters because he's kind of like this, but the dialogue is snappy in that film. And Aaron Storkin likes to have characters talk a lot. Like and his screenplays are known for like two or three characters at all. Are speaking on one page which is a big deal you know like in charlie wilson's war he has um philip seymour hoffman and tom hanks just like riffing off each other the whole time and some of it borders into like the the silly fast-paced comedy of billy wilder but okay he's a little more modern a little more contemporary but to go right. back to billy wilder i feel like to go from sunset boulevard which is dark you know it's a it's a dark film and it's his best, oh, in my opinion. Easy. Yeah. Like, it has to be. I mean, this might be a close second, though. Oh, yeah. This movie was so fun, but Sunset oh, Boulevard wait. is... Shout out to The Lost Weekend as well. I forgot that oh, yeah, one. Yeah, That's yeah. one of the best drunk movies ever. <laughs> Did you like Love in the Afternoon with Gary Cooper? I hated it. Okay. I, I hated it thoroughly. I could not watch it. I think it's because it's like... I did not... I was not a fan of... Audrey Hepburn falling in love with Gary Cooper, who looks like he smells like fucking mothballs. He's like mm -hmm. 109 years old, and mm -hmm. she's like this goddess, and he's just like, oh, I'm an old playboy. And you're like, fuck you. <laughs> and I didn't, I was like, why do I care about this romance? Yeah, that might that might be the worst one I've seen from him. Okay, because like that one came out right before uh, the seven-year itch, so I was like. Came out after. Came out two years after. Oh, did it? It came out after Sabrina. Oh, it did. Okay. Yeah, wait, yeah. wait, wait. I'm getting my... Yeah, no. Yeah, it came out... 57, it came out. And 57. Seven Years came out in 55. So you're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because yeah. like that era of Billy Wilder movies is probably my least favorite out of the ones that I've seen. Spirit of St. Louis with Jimmy Stewart. That movie is so fucking boring. <laughs> it's so badly casted. It's Jimmy Stewart playing Charles Lindbergh. Who's oh. supposed to be like 27 and it's like 60 year old Jimmy Stewart and the movie's just bad. No way. That's amazing. I think it was a director for hire thing. I think Jimmy, I think um, Billy Wilder came in at the last minute or something like that. I can't remember, but it's not good. Don't watch it. It's interesting that he just started to go off kind of on this thing with Peter Sellers because I, I love Peter Sellers. I mean, I think the guy's hilarious, but the 60s seems to be a weird time for Billy Wilder. Did he use Peter Sellers a lot? I haven't seen those movies. 
You talking about Walter Matthau? Walter Matthau, sorry. Yeah, yeah he yeah. starts making like all his movies from like the Jack 60s Lemon on. Too, sorry. Seems to be like Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau movies. That's who I'm talking about. Sorry. Yeah, no, these are Peter like Sellers. my grandma's favorite movies, you know. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, grandma, these are not Stay Leg 17. These are not Sunset Boulevard. So I wanted to. I haven't looked really much into like his legacy or like who he has influenced, but I'm sure it's humongous. I mean, if you're any if you're any director of note who makes like snappy romance comedies, then he's definitely an influence. But he's also an influence if you make noir, which is a weird juxtaposition because mm-hmm. of his early movies, like like we keep saying, Sunset Boulevard, but also Double Indemnity. Those are absolute like poster book noir. You and one one could even make the argument that Double Indemnity is like the original noir. Yeah. Did it come out before like the Maltese Falcon? Um, no. So you're right. Maltese Falcon 100% has got to be. That's a perfect movie as well. Yeah, that movie is great. Um, it's funny because I started off not liking Humphrey Bogart at first because I had seen like, uh, Ca- I mean, Casablanca is Casablanca, but like to ha- see it over and over as like a kid because it's like a oh. family's favorite movie. It's like, yeah. I don't know. I just. <laughs> I wasn't interested in it. Well, you had fucking Stockholm Syndrome. I like, know, I know. Like, right? Well, I guess then you'd like it. Do you think that the Big Lebowski has any Billy Wilder in it at all? Mm, do I think the Coens have Billy Wilder? Yeah. Maybe? I mean... I'm sure that they're fans. It's kind of a hangout They're 100% movie. fans of certain Billy Wilder movies. I could say that much. You'd be hard-pressed to find a director who's of a certain age that isn't a fan of Sunset Boulevard, for instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know that that movie, like, kind of set David Lynch on, like, his whole, like, passion for filmmaking and not just that film, but I know that it really, like, invigorated him when he was younger. Really? Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. And also, I will want to say, I guess I haven't heard a lot of, like, shout-outs to him explicitly from the film world, but in all of the films I've seen after him, there's something there where Billy Wilder has like left his mark. Um, I mean, we're we're further moved along now, where it's almost like people would say it's Spielberg leaving his mark. You know? Yeah. I was gonna say I think it might just be time. Yeah. Like it's just so far back now that younger filmmakers are like looking up to people like you know Spielberg and maybe even Spielberg and Scorsese will go out of fashion in ten years. Oh, they're still making movies, so yeah, yeah. not yet. But but I think it's just it's just too far back now and while wilder was making movies up until like the early 80s those aren't the movies people remember yeah they're just not people don't talk about buddy buddy or the front page besides my grandma you know that's cool yeah i mean there's something about he he was uh i'm reading into some of his stuff before um before i watched the movie and i guess he was like a big uh, antique collector towards the end of his life or art collector and he would just have this like insatiable appetite for just collecting all types of art. And now I think of him like, like in Sunset Boulevard, you know, just this aging director just sitting in his house full of trinkets. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't God, know. He won fucking six Academy Awards. I know you and I have talked before about our dil- disillusionment with the Academy Awards, but still, man, to win six of them. Oh, I mean, and th- he was winning Capoli. it when it was like. It was still. When it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> As Jim Carrey says, you know, when they were still the cool guys. 
Wow, The Apartment won Best Picture. How the fuck? I mean, that movie's alright, but it's just about people having sex in Jack Lemmon's apartment. Wait, is that the one with uh, Shirley MacLaine? Yeah. Okay, I have seen that one. I didn't know that. I didn't even know that that was him. Yeah, Fred McMurray. Um, but I think that's enough, like, Billy Wilder talk. I want to move on to some uh, awards, if you're into that. Oh, I'm down. So, who gets, I mean, okay, the, our Phil Hoffman Award for Best Performance. Oh, yeah. Is there any possible universe where this doesn't go to William Holden? I mean, if we wanted to really give it to to Animal and to Robert Strauss for that just absolutely kinetic display. Because there, <laughs> there were some films where Philip Seymour Hoffman did unfortunately market to like his like chubbiness you know in his in his films and his like kind of like slapstickiness thinking of like a long game bali twister really early philip seymour hoffman films it was before he was like capote you know yeah and before he did this film where he played a transgender um i believe prostitute that lived in an apartment building with uh robert de niro who's a police officer who suffers a stroke who is then like forced to be under the care of this transgender apartment mate and it's just total clashing of ideals and that's really where philip seymour hoffman was like on the scene it's like they were like oh this guy can fucking act and i don't know i not to get too into the namesake of the award but william holden has (laughs) got to take it right like yeah it has to be holden yeah it just has to be cool he won the oscar for it oh did he yeah he did okay you know I had a trouble at the beginning of the film recognizing him because of his shorter hair. It was just that goddamn face and those dimples. I was like, I know this person. And then I looked it up and I was actually really angry with myself. Yeah. Dude, side note, I think I think uh, William Holden was that generation's Robert Downey Jr. Where it's oh. like he just kind of play- It feels like every character he plays is William Holden. Like, it just has his natural charisma and panache and just, like, feels like who he probably was yeah. in the same way that Downey plays Downey. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I feel like I knew a guy that reminded me of William Holden. It was a neighbor, and he used to do construction work with my dad. And he was just, his name was Steve Sidlick. I don't know if you're still around, Steve, but if you're hearing this, what's up? Shout out to Steve. He used to, like, roll up to my dad's house with a case of beer and a cigarette just blasting the doors and then they get nice. to work my kind of guy right, right? there like, oh my god and he he had the same kind of like smile or like teeth as william holden and i don't know what it was it was insane he would just he had the smile that it was like he was like in trouble or like he was doing something mischievous and i was like you're cool well yeah we'll give the phil hoffman award to william holden cool cool um this one's tough What's the I Drink Your Milkshake Award for most memorable scene? What does that go to? So I'll, I'll let you think. Yeah. I, I thought about this one before I watched the movie. And I was like, what is the one that shines out like from the distance of time? Mm-hmm. The, the brightest. And it's actually the scene where they're hanging out, getting drunk and dancing. An animal gets drunk and he mistakes, uh, what's his name? Oh, I know, what you're, I know mistakes, exactly what you're talking about. He mistakes Harry Shapiro for uh, Betty Grable. Yes. He's like, Betty. And he's like, you have the nicest legs. And he's like, animal, it's me. <laughs> I don't know. I love that scene. I thought that scene was fucking hilarious and so like touching. And it, I don't know, it, it wrapped all these things together where it's like the, the 
the camaraderie elements, mm-hmm. but also like Animal being despondent because he hasn't seen a woman in five years and... I don't know. It's just it's just very touching, and it's the one I remember the most. So that's what I'm gonna give the award to. That I mean, that's a great choice, right? Because you've seen it. You see it a lot in war movies where it, the buddy tugs at the heartstrings of back home, of images of home, right? Like when we get back home, I'm gonna get you on a date with Betty Grable. Yeah, my, my <laughs> cousin works with the Los Angeles Water District. We're gonna drive down, and it's like. Sitting in a foxhole somewhere in the fuck in the middle of the fucking forest in Europe, or even worse, in a prisoner of war camp, you know? Yeah. And hearing something like the sunny sands of LA and being able to roll up to Betty Grable's door is just like a beautiful <laughs> scene. So, yeah, no, I, I fucking love that yeah. shit. It's really evocative. Yeah, Shapiro and Animal were so good at, at that. Like, if we had a best dynamic award, maybe yeah. we'll, we'll, I think we'll naturally evolve our awards. As we the go Batman on. and Robin but, um, Award. Yeah, the Batman and Robin Award, something like that. Maybe less homoerotic, yeah. but we'll find out. Oh, man. So that question, though, that's that's really hard. Um, you know, I think the favorite scene for me, the one that really brought the movie to life, was when Schultz is kicking everyone out, and he's finally alone in the barracks. And he looks at the light bulb, straightens it, replaces the queen, because that one I was like, oh my god here we go like i have something to look out for at first i didn't even know if the traitor was real i thought it was just paranoia from the 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 prisoners oh interesting and then that scene just is like it's like the pin in the movie it's just like i don't know it just set me off on what i really enjoyed about the film yeah once it kicks into gear yeah it's like innocuous you know it's not nothing really crazy is going on but for me that was like that was really cool i mean the ping pong balls were cool. I liked the smoke, the smoke bombs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. egg as well. The cooking of the egg. Oh, that solidified. You, you like that egg. You oh, started man. this morning. You're like, you messaged me. You're like, I'm cooking my one egg. Got my coffee pot going. So I don't know what it is about black and white films, but when I see food in it, it like my imagination just salivates. Like the sound of the crackling egg animal and shapiro and all the faces just hovering over (laughs) like they're like are you gonna eat the shell he's like no go for it (laughs) (laughs) oh like i can feel the like residual heat from like the stove and like oh man that scene was just beautiful dude there are so many little setups and payoffs to this movie like i can't even remember all of them but it's like you have a setup for that where it's like they have potato soup and the guy's like, anyone want potato soup? And then they're like, no. And it's so bad and so close to water that he just starts cleaning his socks in it. Oh, God. <laughs> Takes the washboard out and dips it in there. Yeah. You see Shapiro and fucking animal bust in. <laughs> they're like, chow time. Yeah. Oh, uh. shit. Yeah, I feel like there are more on the just the periphery of my consciousness. These little things, these little fucking visual things that the characters do that feel like it lends a cohesion to the movie and makes the world come alive like when you see little things i'll I'll point out um in ace in the hole there's a great example of this where every time one of the characters i think it's kirk douglas walks into the like the journaling room the journalism room Mm -hmm. whatever it's called the newsroom there's this little door and he hits it so hard that it smacks like goes bam and then goes back (laughs) every single time (laughs) <laughs> and that adds nothing to the movie or, like, the story, 
but it makes it feel real and it's like this little punctuation mark of reality and comedy that adds an infinite amount of depth to a film oh absolutely perfectly and there were a lot of those in stay lag oh it's 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 the hallmark of a good artistic storyteller whether it's visual or even written in literature like there's some authors who can describe the most mundane actions of our lives that make their stories that much realer and you really get drawn down into the minutia of what it is to be alive and to be like human because you don't walk around thinking about all the time you know the big earthly movements and politics of the day the world conflicts and things like that you know sometimes you're walking down the street and it's something as simple as dodging a pile of dog poop on the sidewalk or you know like you find a gum wrapper in your pocket and when an artist can elucidate those things it makes the world like just blow up in my imagination so i don't know props to billy wilder and all the little visual cues of this film my my brain was like filling in colors Honestly, like it's in black and white, but there's You've so mentioned much... that a couple times. Your yeah. brain that your brain fills in things when it's in color. The the tan of some of the suits that or the some of the jackets they'd be wearing or like the brown leather, you know, and like just the the steely like grays of the the Nazi uniform, like even though it's in black and white, like I don't something about the mud and the dirt and the spotlights and all the playing with the shadows, like there was enough stimulation there visually for me to just do it on my own afterwards. Yeah, I don't do that. I just kind of let it speak for itself, but I, I can see where you're coming from, definitely. Um, For awards, I mean, I don't think there's a way to give the Will Smith Award for most uncomfortable scene. I don't know if any of the scenes were that uncomfortable. Even the death scenes weren't that uncomfortable, right? They did it very mute, mutedly, like where they like had him under the, the like burlap sacks with the the you could see his little escape package tied to his yeah. ankle when oh, they're all yeah. nudging nice each little other. Detail. Yeah. But other than that, there wasn't anything yeah. too remarkable. I don't think we're gonna give that one out today. Same with the Willem Dafoe award for most erotic scene. Although maybe maybe when Shapiro and Animal are dancing and he's uh complimenting his gams, maybe yeah. we could give it to that. Yeah. That yeah. is true. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I don't know, maybe the inference of William Holden going over and having a lovely night with the girls, the Russian girls. Oh, that's girls. true, actually. That's true. It's not that's a what, scene because we don't see it. But That's what really set it off, right? Like uh, everyone accusing him. Yeah, that that like just the right time to, to do that. And that's our scenes. I have one more element I want to talk about and then we'll wrap up. And that is the theme song. Now, these old war movies started to do this. Um, the most famous examples are Bridge on the River Kwai and The Great Escape where you could just like whistle those at any time of the day when you're just doing something and this movie I feel like I don't know I don't feel like it's absolutely the progenitor of that but you do have a theme song it's like the ants go marching one by one da 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 and it comes back like three or four times um not to the extent that it does in those movies but I did want to point it out that I like that. I like that recurring theme, and especially with these old war movies for some reason. And I was wondering if you picked up on that as well. The fact that that's what Cookie starts whistling after William Holden finally escapes with Dunbar. Yeah. Um, it like, I mean, that's how the movie starts, right? With the like the overture and the orchestra playing it, and then he end they end it with him whistling it, 
it it's interesting because you kind of take whatever folk song or whatever song that the film uses and associate it with the tone of the movie so like the great escape has the nice little you know marching whistling thing and then wait is it which one i dude i i get messed up with which one is great escape and which one is bridge on the river Kwai because they're very similar yeah the the great escape one is the one with like the whistling yeah where it's like whistling so i'll do the great they both are okay it's No, they're they're subtly different. All right, you and I are going to settle this later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, uh, is there any any finishing thoughts for Stalag 17? I mean, <sighs> it's just so fucking good. If you see this film, you got to go and try and see The Great Escape as well. And neither and this isn't even like a comparison of like, oh, you got to see which one is better. Both of them are just so good. I just didn't realize how much influence was taken from Stalag 17. I mean, it's impossible not to see it. Like, Do you think influence. it's possible that somebody has seen Stalag 17 and not seen The Great Escape, though, in this day and age? Who would be listening to this show? Mm, that's true. I mean, I hadn't seen Stalag 17, but I had seen The Great Escape several times. Yeah. But... That makes a little more sense, right? Because The Great Escape, like you said, it's in color. Steve McQueen, wide aspect ratio, came out in the 60s. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But Um, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I think it's almost almost perfect in the sense that it's so simple that it, like, I don't know. It's exactly what I wanted from from the film. I got everything I wanted and everything I expected, which uh, is hard to do. I'm so glad. It's hard to do with with movies, you know. So, I'm so glad you loved it, man. I'm so glad you loved. It. I'm glad I could give you this gift. Yeah, <laughs> real weirdo is the gift that keeps giving. Exactly. Except when you watch Gone in sixty seconds. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, man, I completely agree. I think it's it's one of the best movies of the era. I think it's a fantastic ensemble. It's a great character movie. Um, it's a great example of really powerful visionary directing with a limited budget. And like the tools of the time, it's just fantastic visual storytelling. Yeah, everything, everything about it is great. I love it. <laughs> and with that, we will wrap up. What did you think of Stay Leg Seventeen? Let us know in the comments below. <laughs> I'm joking, but that would actually be fun if you guys want to do that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's us, real weirdos, Alex and Jesse, done with our book report about a movie because a book report about a movie makes sense. And we'll catch y'all in the next one. All right. Enjoy your egg. Now our podcast is done and we have to run. We know it is sad, but we had so much fun. Don't be bereft, Jesse, Alex, and Jeff will be back real soon. The Real Weirdos, we talk about movies for way too goddamn long.